The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Lynette Zhang, uh, who's got a hell of a following on YouTube and on Twitter here as well. Uh, Lynette, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you as you get interested, involved in markets, and what are you doing now? Well, actually, Michael, you know, this is something that I've been involved in on some level since I was 10 years old in 1964. So I feel like I have been groomed for this moment in time. But, you know, historically, I've been a banker, a stockbroker, and it was as a stockbroker at Shearson that I started studying currencies in 1987. So I was there on Black Monday. I had just gone off salary. That was the best day I could have ever been a stockbroker. What an interesting day. But in that capacity, I started studying currencies and noticed repeatable patterns. So I went to ITM trading in 2002 after I saw that there was a confirmation of the end of this current government-based currencies life cycle. So the dollar, but this is true for the euro, the yen, all of them. And uh, there I am, the chief market analyst. So I pay attention very closely to the central banks, to the Bank for International Settlements, which is a central banker's central bank the IMF, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC. That, that's who I really pay most attention to. You said that you noticed with currencies that they're, they're repeatable patterns. I'm, I'm curious if you think trading currencies is easier than trading other asset classes because of those patterns, because of mean aversion. Well, I'm really referring not to the short term. I'm, you know, even though I had my commodities license back in the day, I never was a really short-term trader. That kind of takes a certain mentality that I don't have. I am a long-term strategist. So when I'm referring to repeatable patterns here, um, although you can take them shorter, that's just not the way I've utilized them. In the long term, you can watch a currency die. And so if all of your investments, you can only convert into a dying currency then uh, kind of blinds you to the real trend, which is in the purchasing power of that currency. And, and officially, according to the Federal Reserve, there's three cents left, but there's a big fat zero 
on that purchasing power chart. And anybody can access it. It's at the FRED, F-R-E-D, Federal Reserve Education Department. So that's the patterns that I'm talking about. And I'm seeing them in spades right now. Everybody else is too. The looming wars and geopolitical strife that we have, um, the issues around oil that we have, uh, even the issues uh, around equality that we have, as well as the insanity and lack of liquidity in the markets, even with all that money printing. So those are the patterns that I'm referring to. And I'm really seeing them all. I mean, they're all present right now, all of them. So I got to be honest, you sound a little bit um, like a Bitcoin maximalist in that, in that framework and, and a gold bug too. And we'll get into that. But take the audience a little bit through the idea of a dying currency. What, what does that actually mean in practice? And what are some of the historical uh, examples of that? Well, we, we can take a look. You, everybody might notice that there are so many references to this being like it was in the, in the 60s or 70s or 80s when we were transitioning from a, from a quasi-gold-backed standard to a debt-backed standard. So we saw all of these. I remember that. I was like, you know, I was a late teenager at that point. So I didn't understand what was happening but I saw the Vietnam War and I actually had a sister that was billy clubbed at Kent State uh, back in the day. We had the oil embargo. That's when we the U.S. dollar became the petrodollar was after that. Uh, women's lib. And you can look at labor force participation. And that's when the women started to really come full force into the system. But uh, and then there are a few more. But going back. Even further than that, when we look at what was happening in 1913, when the Federal Reserve was first instituted, 1914, we had World War I, and we also had suffragette movement. So, you know, these are the kinds of things. And what happens, like in 1913, a 20th of an ounce backed a $1 bill, okay? Now, it, when you're on a gold standard, the power is really with the public, because if you did not like what the government was doing, you would simply take, say, a $20 bill to your bank and convert it into a $20 gold coin, which was roughly an ounce of gold, and pull the gold out of the system. And that, of course, created restrictions. Additionally, corporations really wanted to be able to pay their workers less. But hey, if you're used to getting 20 bucks an hour, you're not going to accept 10. But if you could make that $20 spend like 10, well, voila, then you had it handled. So the government wanted to create taxation without having to go through legislation. Inflation does that. What people don't realize is that when they were setting up this new currency back then, they actually put inflation was a key part of the composition of the currency so that that you were actually paying that almost invisible inflation tax, but the government didn't have to go through legislation. Additionally, where corporations are concerned, especially since 1971, when Nixon close the gold window, which sounds so lovely, doesn't sound like a big deal. 
But what actually happened was that he handed over full control of inflation to those private central banks. And keep in mind, the Federal Reserve is not a government agency, uh, at least officially. (laughs) I mean, it does do its bidding, but uh, it's not a government agency and they don't hold reserves. So once they were in charge of inflation, well, it's not a wonder that more people had to come into the workforce to support their family's income. I think the average wage right now is, especially with all of the increases that we've had, is somewhere around maybe $67,000 a year. But we all know that if that's what you're earning, you got to have two wages and then you're still paycheck to paycheck. Where in 1971, 9,500 with one worker would support that family of four. What we've also seen uh, since 1971 is the income and wealth inequality, which has even surpassed the levels back in the day, back in 1928, 1929. You know, again, it, back in 71, it was pretty normal, or the average CEO to workers' wage was 20 to 1. Now, in many cases, it could be 3,000 to 1. And so we can see that all of the increased productivity has really floated to the top. And this whole system, by design, is transfer of wealth. Because if we get paid for our labor and we aren't getting paid what we really think we're getting paid, then that is a form of robbery. You just don't complain about it. 2% inflation, they still get that inflation. You just don't complain about it. And by the way, that's what central banks refer to as price stability. It is not prices staying the same. It's that you as the public don't change how you invest, don't change, um, you don't ask for more money, you don't ask for raises. So the price stability is in the wages, not in the cost of goods and services, which I think is really interesting. So it sounds to me like you primarily attribute the wealth gap more to the ending of the gold standard as opposed to just... The Federal Reserve. I mean, everybody always blames the Fed for everything, but the Fed existed before the gold standard and, you know, before the gold standard was removed, right? And you didn't have these these problems we face today. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Correct. If you look on charts, uh, wages versus productivity, you can see that they pretty much overlap each other until that 1971, when the Federal Reserve became fully in control of inflation. And then that's when it went cattywampus. But you also have to understand that whoever is closest 
to the money being created gets to use it first when it has the most value by that trickle down theory, which doesn't work. And they've even admitted now it doesn't work. That trickle down theory, by the time it reaches the workers' pockets, it has so much less value. And and that's easy to see on the Federal Reserve purchasing power chart. Yeah. And I've, I've made this point before. I mean, the effect of that, as we know, is that everybody's forced to take risks because there's no such thing as a store value. Everyone has to try to compete against debasement. Um, it's been curious to me that the dollar still remains king, though, in the context of these worsening dynamics. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the reserve currency status of uh, the U.S. dollar and if a lot of the sort of doom and gloom around that is justified or not. Well, for one thing, you know, no no currency retains the status of world reserve currency forever. We've had it for a very, the U.S. dollar has had it for a very long time. And that's because uh, during World War I, so many countries sent their gold into us so that by the 40s in Bretton Woods, when we were changing the system again, the U.S. had the most amount of gold of anybody at any country in the world, as well as the strongest military of anybody in the world. Uh, And so, but by 1970, um, I believe it was 1970, I'd have to go back and look on the Fred chart, but that was, it was December, I think it was December 13th, when the Federal Reserve actually had to start buying treasury bonds. Now, the treasury, U.S. treasury bond note, bill, whatever, is the underpinning of the global financial system. So it was already in 2000 that we were not attracting enough buyers of our government debt, but nobody talked about it then because that's what third world countries did. All of a sudden, after 2008, the great financial crisis, well, then it became the thing to do. But we had already started losing it, and we almost lost it when we made that transition off of a fully gold-backed currency. And we actually went to the International Monetary Fund and said, here, take this back. And instead, uh, Kissinger went out and created a relationship with Saudi Arabia and created the petrodollar meaning that anybody in the world, any country or corporation, if they were going to buy oil, they had no other option but to use U.S. dollars for that transaction. And that created an artificial market and gave the U.S. a huge privilege uh, in that U.S. dollar. But recently, Saudi Arabia has come out and said, you know, we can accept other currencies for our oil. So that would absolutely eliminate that advantage of the U.S. dollar. So things seem to happen slowly until they happen very quickly. But understand that we've already been on that trend really since 2000, since the end of 2000. What that also means for us, for for those that are in the U.S., is that all of those dollars that are now being held overseas, or a chunk of them anyway, are likely to be coming back to the U.S. Keep in mind, 
that in the 60s, when we were part of the Vietnam War, the rest of the world was very unhappy with the U.S. because we were exporting inflation because we were printing so much money to fund the war. And there was a run on the dollar where governments were sending in dollars and pulling the gold out of our financial system till we had less gold in our system than we did prior to the gold confiscation in 1933. So I understand that's why we had to close that window where we would have no gold. And, and nobody really knows how much gold anybody has because if you think these guys are going to be honest with us, you probably need to rethink that. They have a job, which is to keep us calm and keep us in the system. I mean, I think we're, I think we're very far along. Plus, the International Monetary Fund created their version of a currency called the SDR, which stands for Special Drawing Rights. It's just a name. It doesn't really mean anything. But they created that in 1969 to take over as the world reserve currency. And that happens to be, back in 69, it was based on gold. But after that and through today, it's actually a basket of currencies. So it's been around since 69. Since the great financial crisis, they have um, injected massive amounts, even just recently, massive amounts of SDRs into the global uh, banking system, government system. So it's right. And to take over as the world reserve currency, um, I've been calling, uh, talking about the reset since 2009 after I listened to an interview with Christine Lagarde, who was the head of the IMF at that time. And inside of a 20-minute interview, she used the term reset probably about 30 times. And I went, holy crap, this is it. And uh, then I heard China come out and say, what about the SDR? Because I was wondering what was going to take over too. And I thought, well, that makes the most sense. Everybody's got a bunch of them. They're familiar with them since 1969. If your listeners go into the post office and in the search bar, put SDRs, they will come up. So, uh, and they can expand that basket to include every currency on the planet if they want to. So we could have, you know, kind of a dual currency situation where you have the world reserve currency being the SDR, a basket of global currencies, and then the local currency. So in the U.S., that would be the U.S. dollar, even as it converts to digital or CBDCs. Further, the IMF, created what's called a substitution fund where any holders of U.S. dollar denominated, uh, I'll call them assets because that's what they're called. I view them, I don't really view them as assets, but if they've got U.S. dollar denominated debt, so bonds or notes or what have you, they can deposit them in the substitution fund and then the IMF can convert them into SDRs. And so that does a couple of things. Number one, it would make, if a lot of entities utilize that, which they would, then that would establish the SDR um, as the the largest currency uh, out there, 
So it would establish their position. And number two, in theory, they could regulate the speed of the dollars coming back to the U.S., but that's in theory. So number one, we we have heard that the IMF has the quote-unquote cleanest balance sheet because unlike individual current uh, countries, they have who have to create debt in order to create money. Well, the IMF doesn't have to do that because they're they just use the basket of currencies. So it's the countries that create that debt. And so yes, the IMF as well as the BIS would most likely bail everything out and take control. The IMF has also talked about um, in the in the digital currencies uh, talked about holding ta- uh, titles for all of your assets on tokens, which are then broken down. So if you have just to make life easy, uh, and this is how it would impact everybody, and particularly in the U.S. You know, if you had, say, $100,000 in equity in your home, and now all of a sudden you're carrying that equity in little teeny increments, say, broken down to a dollar, and we've been trained for short-termism, right? So thinking about things in short-term and we're consumer-driven. Ultimately, what is most likely to happen is that you end up spending your equity. And then who can you blame, right, when that happens? For those in the U.S., or actually this part would be true globally, if you do buy into that and you're, the, who, you're holding locally denominated currencies, then there's your devaluation. I mean, we've just seen recently in Ghana that they forced the local gold producers uh, to sell them 20% of their refined gold in the local currency that officially had devalued, been devalued 57%. So at the, at the time that they did that, what does that do? That means that anybody that is forced to participate, I mean, that's a lot of wealth transferred. That's why having physical gold and physical silver that is truly outside of the system and is good money Um, that's why it becomes so critical. And by the way, I'd like to make this point because I never really hear anybody else make this point. And I think it's critical that everybody understands it. When you look at the global economy, physical gold and silver is used in every single aspect of the global economy. So yes, in the financial system, but it's also in art, it's in jewelry, it's in medicine, it's in space travel, it's in electronics, and on and on and on and on. So you have the broadest base of functionality that they have never been able to figure out how to duplicate in a lab. Therefore, you also have the broadest base of buyer. And we've established over at the IMF, uh, you know, the countries have donated to the IMF physical gold holdings. And, And we've just seen globally central banks bought more as much gold as they did since 1967 when we were in this transition before. Is that an accident? Is it a coincidence? Or are they getting ready? 
for a global hyperinflationary event. You said something which I wrote down, I wanted to touch on, which is kind of a big theme of mine. Uh, you said we've been trained for short-termism. I love that idea because I do myself believe that very much so. I mean, there's all kinds of studies that show that attention spans have gotten only shorter and shorter. I'm curious, how do you, aside from a discussion around gold and where we are in the cycle, how do people get out of this this short-termism mess? And it is a mess, right? Because you can't really enact any effective change on the fiscal side, on the monetary side, unless people pay attention for longer than six seconds. Yeah, but they don't want us to pay attention for longer than six seconds. And how do you combat that? You know, I don't know. I'm going to be really honest with you. It's really a huge challenge for everybody. I've never really thought in terms of short term. And history is the best teacher to what is the next most likely outcome. So, you know, one of the ways that you combat it, if you're working with ITM, frankly, is we created a strategy. I created it before I even went to, to ITM, and then together we've made it better. But it's called the Wealth Shield Strategy, where we take all the different components, and the first thing you do is you establish your goals. And I think maybe that's it. You get people to look at things a little differently because then it's amazing what you see. But what do you really want to accomplish? Because that forces you to think in the longer term. I want to educate my children. I want to, you know, I want to retire. I want to leave a legacy for my family so they have choices. Those are, you know, you start thinking in longer term. What are you really trying to accomplish? You have your short-term goals. You've got your long-term goals. And then you look at, well, what is the right tool for that job? What's really going to put me in a position where I can accomplish my goals? And then how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And then you start working towards them. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Okay, so I named the space banks are planning for collapse, given some of the stuff that you put out on that YouTube channel. Um, mm-hmm. It sounds scary, <laughs> but <laughs> let, let's talk through what you're seeing and why stockpiling of gold might be a sign of, you know, let's call it smarter money, not smart money, smarter money, maybe seeing something coming. Well, you know, I don't know how many of your listeners listen to the Uh, November, I believe it was November 6th, FDIC meeting for the resolution committee, where they actually said, because apparently nobody videos those, I'm being very facetious when I say that, because some of the things that come out of their mouths are just incredible. And a couple things that came out of their mouths was that, you know, the people that really needed to understand what was happening, well, look at this out in the meeting. 
they have their attorneys, they have their accountants. So they're going to understand this. But you don't want this information leaked to the general public because, wow, they might make other choices. And of course, they should know their funds will be bailed in. So here you have the uh, that the insurance that is supposed to make sure that at least two hundred and fifty thousand that you have in your bank account is uh, insured. First of all, they have a little more than a penny to for every insured dollar, and then there's a lot of dollars that aren't insured, which could become problematic if you're a small business and you have to hold uh, payroll. Okay. And bailed in means that all of that money that's in there, if it doesn't just disappear and become shares of stock in a failing institution, well, then you would have very limited access to it. So banks are talking about the bail-in and the fact that the public is going to be bailed in, but we don't want to give them information to help them make different choices. So what is really outside of the system? And and it is, you know, physical gold is the primary currency metal. Silver is the secondary currency metal and kind of straddles. You know, they're in every area, but silver is uh, very much an industrial metal as well. And when I'm looking at um, the failure of the banks, well, you know, central banks are only accumulating the most gold they had since 1967 because it's what? Tradition. And if you look on that long-term chart, you actually see globally central banks beginning to accumulate gold in earnest in 2005. 2005. And seriously, they went net positive in 2010 and then they've been just accumulating physical. And, and people need to understand, there's a fine, when you're physical, there's a finite amount. If it's intangible, well, then you can have an, into, a, 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 an infinite amount. But in the physical world, this is the money that the global banks and the central banks, uh, governments and central banks, actually revalue or reset the failing currencies against. Current great example is the Lebanese pound. And in overnight, that 90% devaluation, I mean, if you look at the graph, you see gold for like 25 years, flat, 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 until February 1st, (laughs) when they had the revaluation. And you saw the spot gold market in Lebanon go up almost 1,300%. What do you want to be sitting in when that happens? I want to be sitting in gold and silver, but keep in mind, food becomes the biggest issue for people. So I have a mantra that I've executed for myself and, um, and a lot of other people have been executing this too, I'm happy to say, but it's food, water, energy, security, barterability, wealth preservation, community, and shelter. So uh, we have another channel beyond gold and silver that helps people with all of that. And, you know, uh, 
that shortism, short-termism, you, you really have to sit down and define your goals. And we have tools to help you do that, whether the short-term goals or long-term goals. But just start thinking about what you want in the future. Help square away that that accumulation of gold with the desire to launch a CBDC. What are your thoughts on <laughs> CBDCs and you know how does that, because you know, if the narrative is correct on CBDCs, then there's no need for gold because that's the central bank answer to what comes next. Well, you know, a CBDC, okay, so we had the gold money and that put the power of the purse in the public's hands. Because like I said earlier, if you didn't like that, what they were doing, you take in a $20 bill and you walk out with roughly an ounce of gold. Then we went to pure fiat. So after 71, that's pure debt-based. And even though uh, you could not protect yourself from the inflation, ravages of inflation, how much money it takes to buy different uh, everything, right, today versus yesterday, when we go into CBDCs, those are completely programmable money. You know, recently I was doing some work and I noticed that the Federal Reserve has been changing the definition of money. In the beginning, the definition of money was as a tool of measure, a tool of barter, a short-term store of value to ensure that you are you are fairly paid for your labor and a long-term store of value so that no matter when you use that money, you are always fairly paid for your labor. Well, I can't tell you when they did it and they did scrub a lot of things. So I, I don't know the exact moment, but they've already reduced the definition down to three, which is probably more honest but just a tool of measure, a tool of barter, and a short-term store of value. Once they go to CBDCs, they will further redefine it to be a tool of measure and a tool of barter. Because as soon as your paycheck hits your bank account, there are no limitations to how low they can push interest rates. So while they're going to sell it to us like, wow, this is going to eliminate inflation, in reality, it's going to create hyperdeflation. And what they've talked about is having their finger on that button constantly. Because right now, when they institute policy, it takes like 12 to 18 months for it to go through the economic system to see, did they get what they wanted? But once the CBDC is instituted, oh, we're consumer driven, right? You're not spending your money fast enough. Let's just keep lowering those interest rates until you can sit there, watch your bank account evaporate, and you know you're not spending any money. So what are you likely to do? Go out and spend, which is what happens in hyperinflation. They're really the same sides of both coins. So I used to think that I would convert a chunk of the money that I had in gold, not everything, because every portfolio should always have that as a foundation. But I thought I would convert a chunk of it on the other side of this mess into the new currency, which is most likely to have a component of gold in it. CBDCs won't. That's not going to be the new currency. But that'll finish it off. Because since they've gotten all the purchasing power, those negative rates attack your principal. Now, once all confidence in all of that is lost, 
then there'll be a component of gold, most likely, because that's what history tells us. But with the advent of the CBDCs, I will convert my gold into CBDCs as I need it. I won't be converting anything extra. Nothing. I'm curious in terms of just your own um, investment portfolio. I mean, obviously, I get it. You're big on gold and, and silver, but it's like everything else, right? Presumably, you're diversified. You've got more than just that. Are you are you doing the miners on the stock side? Are you mixing it up with different things? Or is it you know, 100% conviction that this is the concentrated bet to make? You know, like I said earlier, I've been groomed for this moment in time. In good conscience and in all logic, I cannot invest in a negative trend. My preference is to have the lion's share of my wealth in a long-term positive trend. And I am 100% crystal clear on what is happening to the fiat currencies. So um, this has not always been true, and I imagine it will not always be true into the future. I know I don't own any of those fiat money instruments or assets because the real trend is in the purchasing power. And I know that's going, I mean, look, anybody can look at the chart and see it going away, right? And these things happen slowly and then they happen fast. So no, I don't own a stock and I'm an ex-stock broker and I'm definitely a technician. So, you know, I should have a very high level of comfort with this stuff. And I do, but that's also the problem because I actually understand what's happening. And so, no, I don't own any of that. So I love the idea that you sounded a little bit like a Bitcoin maxi. And yeah, I I I tend to think in actually similar terms. I my personal fix is my thought is it's more around just legal limits and maybe constitutional amendments as opposed to a whole different currency system, but that's all debatable. Um I, I'm curious why why gold versus Bitcoin and can the two sort of coexist in that in that new world? Well, number one, I think the if you look at the Bank for International Settlements mon- money flower you'll see that they are planning for them to coexist, though a very small area of private cryptocurrencies. You know, I, I people buy cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular because apparently that's different than the rest of them. But people buy that and they have the same kind of mental process as those that buy gold. So uh, the answer is that I do think that they will ultimately coexist. But you know, I read the 1996 NSA, which is a government agency white paper on how to create a mint. And it seems pretty similar to what we got. I also think it's not a coincidence that Bitcoin came out in January of 2009 and quantitative easing started in March of 2009. So I've actually been watching it since it was $7 a token, but I don't personally own any of it. And it isn't that I don't necessarily think it will survive, but I'm not sure exactly who will survive. Most likely it will be Bitcoin uh, because certainly Wall Street has adopted it in a very big way. Uh, but I think it needs to go through an iteration. And the reason why I am definitely leaning more toward gold, there's two big reasons. Number one, it has a 6,000-year track record and cryptocurrencies. I think that was more about getting people comfortable so that they could make the transition into a digital currency. 
um, is just not proven. That's since 2009 versus 6,000 years. So I kind of trust that. Plus, I see that central banks are not accumulating cryptocurrencies, but they are accumulating massive amounts of gold. But here's also one of the key pieces. I'm executing a strategy. And since wealth never disappears, it merely shifts location. My goal is to have the wealth shift our way, right? Too long it shifts to those that have already accumulated because we don't understand what's happening. And so what I know is at the end of the day, central banks revalue currencies against gold. So where we see those other um, asset classes that are severely overvalued and gold and silver severely undervalued, because if you still trust Wall Street on any of this stuff, well, I have a bridge in Brooklyn you might want to take a look at, but that'll flip-flop. And then I'm going to be in a position, I, this is what history shows me, that I will be in a position to accumulate income-producing assets when they are severely undervalued. Does anybody really know what the value of cryptocurrencies are? They're a risk-on asset. So until that settles out and I can see where we move to from here, that's when I will become a buyer. Not yet. It's the same thing with stocks. Let's see who's going to survive. Let's let this whole mess unfold. That's when I will become a buyer. The biggest challenge that I see with cryptocurrencies is how volatile they are. So it's, it's kind of hard to purchase with them, right? To use them as a tool of barter. Who survives this whole social, economic, and financial reset? Because we have a lot of, on the stock side, we have a lot of zombie corporations. I was doing an interview recently and you know, and the woman thought she was getting a little snide with me, actually, and said, oh, yeah, a zombie apocalypse. Well, you know, you're thinking about the zombies that walk around on Earth, but there are a tremendous amount of zombie corporations that could well take down the banking system and the whole global financial system. So that's really what I'm referring to in that. Who's going to survive? I don't know. You know, you can look at their balance sheet, you can look at the bank's balance sheet, but if you look at how much work is done off balance sheet and the level of debt that has to be rolled over or serviced or created with the interest rates, I mean, central banks are in a conundrum with the interest rates at this level where they already loaded up on those corporations. That's what I mean. Who's going to survive? I have no idea yet. Nobody does. And which cryptocurrencies are suitable for that one little area of the money flower? I mean, my my bet would be Bitcoin, but I don't know for sure. You mentioned um, you're a technician at heart. And let's face it, I mean, QE, and I, I put a lot of research on this recently, especially around QE3. But, you know, a lot of the sort of fat tail, the fat left tail dynamics of risk in risk on assets was your interest rate policy and QE went away. I mean, it's true, right? All that monetary stimulus gave an unfair advantage to U.S. stocks in particular, emerging markets didn't go anywhere, gold didn't go anywhere. If we go with the idea that QE is what prevented momentum, do you think that if we go back to QE, we'll go back to sort of a period of sort of flatlining gold, silver, commodity 
performance or independent of whatever the Fed does next? You know, the kind of the, the, the horse is out of the barn, so to speak. Yeah, the horse is definitely out of the barn. And I would also say regarding um, physical gold or silver, you know, it's very easy to create as much gold and silver that does not nor ever will exist. And um, in fact, in 2009, and unfortunately, it was before I understood print screen and before they changed how they accounted for derivatives in the bank uh, for international settlements spreadsheet for every one ounce of physical gold that exists in the ground, underground, in any form, there was 62,000 digital ounces of gold. So QE and the rise in in stocks and bonds, and and if you remember back then, they were talking about um, the re-inflation trade, right? They had to reflate stocks, bonds, real estate, and all the derivatives on top of that, which is another big issue, huge actually, so once they go back to this next QE, which which they will, because there's only one way to fight a recession, and that's with inflation, and only one way to fight inflation, and that's with the recession, right? So when we go into this next recession, number one, I don't think it's going to be a soft landing because there are too many other things that are happening that are that I believe are super significant, LIBOR, so for all this stuff. Uh, and so I think we're going to have a very hard recession, if not a depression. And yeah, I think they're going to pull out their money guns. And I think they are going to make what they did in 2020 look like chump change. But part of the challenge is that that inflation genie is already out of the bottle. And so the public is becoming more aware because that's what high inflation does, makes the public aware. Yeah. And I mean, the reality is the optics would be terrible, right? Because inflation is a lagging indicator. So even if you had a credit event, which is my expectation beyond this melt-up, the idea that they go back to QE while inflation is still five, five and a half, six percent, you know, seems optically awful to do. Yeah. But who the hell knows, right? I mean, you know, the Fed has done dumber things than that. <laughs> I think uh, potentially, and this is, again, this is just my opinion, but when you look at the choices that are being made either by the governments or the central banks and not just the fed i mean this is this is a global issue it, it i got a question whether or not they're really trying to kick the can down the road or whether or not they are trying to create a crisis circumstance because you never let a good crisis go to waste and this next piece we have to feel enough fear and pain to accept what they want to cram down our throats. So yeah, they're going to print money because they don't have any other tools, right? Um, and even with the with the creation of the reverse repos and all of this, and you look at the level of reverse repos and you look at the lack of liquidity that has been occurring since 2015 in the U.S. Treasury market, the last vestige of this con game being held together is the public confidence. You know, I mean, you think about last, well, what, it was 2015 with the Swiss surprise, and I know I'm kind of going backwards, but Switzerland kept coming out and vowing to retain its peg 
to the euro dollar. And that's a whole nother long story. But the point is, is they came out and said, this is our highest priority, our highest priority. And two days later, all of a sudden it wasn't a priority and they depegged. And there were a lot of problems that happened. But the, the bottom line is central bankers then knew, even though they had been working in a very synchronized way, that they could not trust each other, that, that a central bank would do what's in their best interest. Last August, and oh my God, I was really surprised that they did this. But last August, the central banks, the Fed started it, and then it kind of moved around the globe, gave up their forward guidance, which was a huge tool that started right after the great financial crisis. So the Fed would would say jump, and then Wall Street would say how high, and then they were positioned to make great gains. Look Look at the profits that they have been making. So they kept promising a 50 basis point increase, 50 basis points, 50 basis points, and then boom, they did 75 basis points. And while that may not seem like that much, what the markets then knew was that they couldn't trust everything that the Fed said. Now, if you look at what's happening today, the markets are playing chicken with the Fed. They don't believe what Powell says. And instead, they think that they're going to do a pivot here. But the Fed is fighting for its credibility that they volunteered last August. I think that's a good place to wrap this space up. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Lynette Zhang. Thank you, Lynette. Really uh, do appreciate your knowledge. I think your YouTube channel is phenomenal. And everybody, if I don't see you, it's your loss. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you, Lynette. I appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's been fun. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.